Welcome back to episode 21 of the Meet Kevin Report. Hey, we've been going for 21 days straight. That's awesome. And that means I've been waking up in uh, 3 o'clock hour for 21 days straight. <laughs> anyway, uh, first, uh, obviously, I, I think by now you've probably heard that, uh, well, uh, Canada, uh, in conjunction with the United States, uh, shot down, uh, uh, well, now we've together shot down two UFOs in addition to a weather balloon in just the last month. Kind of incredible. We had the Chinese weather balloon, aka spy balloon. We've had now two shiny silvery objects and cylindrical style objects, one uh, over the coast of uh, Alaska and uh, one now in Canadian airspace in the Yukon territory shot down yesterday by an F-22. Kind of weird. Now all of a sudden we've got all of these floating around. Now uh, Justin Trudeau and the Canadian government as well as the U.S. government are refusing to speculate on where these objects may be floating in from, whether it's from outer space or Russia or just uh, more objects coming over from China just to bother us. But what we do know is every time we shoot one of these suckers down, the missile alone costs about $400,000. The Sidewinder missiles cost $381,000 to $399,000. And if instead of using a real missile, you were to launch a training missile to practice how to shoot the real ones, well, then you could take 50% off. It's about $209,000 for training one of these missiles, which is kind of interesting. But I think what's more interesting is, what the heck are these things? Some folks speculate that these are metallic balloons the size of a small car and that uh, they're essentially similar as the uh, weather balloon that uh, uh, the quote-unquote weather balloon that uh, blew off course according to China and uh, that, uh, that these are just smaller versions of it flying also at a lower altitude, flying around 40,000 feet, which is unfortunate because 40,000 feet is absolutely within the height of uh, uh, traditional air travel uh, for Americans, whether they're private planes or commercial planes. Either way, 40,000 feet is sort of right at that, that level where uh, you've got plenty of plane activity, so a little bit of an odd level. Although it does make you wonder if they say, oh, it's flying around 40,000 feet, was it really at like 48,000, <laughs> you know? And uh, that was close enough to call it a threat to shoot it down, to try to go pick up the pieces. I don't know, it'll be interesting. But what's not interesting is that now all of a sudden the death toll for those of the Turkish and Syrian earthquake has risen to 28,000. Just pretty terrible and devastating. Uh, remember uh, just a couple days ago we were talking about the BBC's piece on uh, terrible earthquake standards in, uh, in, in Turkey leading to the collapse of even newer buildings. Pretty disgusting, uh, pretty sad, and, and hopefully substantial reform comes to uh, building in, in Turkey. Uh, although we do know there's a, there's a lack of money. That's uh, one of the sad things about uh, about the state of developing countries right now, but especially as we go through a recession and potentially and high periods of inflation. Wild, absolutely wild. So uh, now we've got uh, CPI to talk about because, well, we have a big old CPI report coming up on Tuesday, and I think it's worth touching on the latest and greatest regarding that CPI report. Regarding the latest CPI numbers, boy, oh boy, the numbers are expected to come in hot, 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 and it's not great. We're going to go through two pieces here, one from JPM, one from Barclays. We'll talk about uh, pipeline inflation. We'll talk about 
and the potential for a recession. And uh, well, we got a brace, brace for impact because right now the expectations are for inflation coming out Tuesday, 5.30 a.m. California time. I will be live streaming in the Meet Kevin Report as well uh, as I do every single day. So obviously you're encouraged to join me every single day, but we'll be covering the report live at 5.30 a.m. California time, that's 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. And uh, markets are tensing up. The Federal Reserve's Fed Fund's terminal rate projection is a 5.35 now. That's well up from the 4.9 where we've been sitting. Bond markets are tightening. Mortgage rates are rising. The 10-year Treasury yield is over 3.7%. And all of this is in anticipation of a hot CPI report coming in. Because even if we meet this CPI report, it's still hot. Now, this will probably be the largest economic release. And I think generally what happens is bears like to say, let's wait for the CPI report before buying anything. And then as soon as the CPI report comes out, no matter what that CPI report is, we'll end up having the bears say, let's wait for the next CPI report in March. <laughs> it seems to be pretty consistently what happens. February 14th is Valentine's Day at 8.30 a.m. We'll be getting the CPI report. Uh, Eastern time. The next one comes out basically exactly uh, a month later on March 14th, just one day before the Ides of March, and then April 12th thereafter, followed by May 10th. But most importantly, now we've got to focus on February. And for February, thanks to a potential increase in medical service costs and used vehicle prices, which seem to potentially have, at least in the short term, hit a bottom and are starting to rise, used vehicles make up about a 4.5% weight of the CPI. We expect that core CPI month-over-month -month data will be coming in at 0.4%. Now, it's important to realize how important alone that used vehicle pricing is because if you, uh, and we'll draw this out on screen here, but if you take a 4.5% weighting, it's roughly 4.5%, so we're doing a tiny little bit of round, rounding there. So if that is the weight for used cars, we'll just write UC, used cars. If that's the weight for used cars, and you multiply the uh, rate at which used car prices increased in just the month of January over December, which is 2.5%, uh, what you'll actually get is a result that looks like this, 0.11. And now what's fascinating about that is last month's inflation reading for the month over month core was negative 0.1. So just to show you the impact of what just one piece of this CPI report can have is that if we had this used car price increase last month, we would have actually been slightly positive on month-over-month -month inflation. That entire point one would have gotten eradicated by used cars alone. It shows you how powerful that is, the used car sector. So even if inflation were going to be 0% on everything except for used cars, it would actually come in at positive 0.11 thanks to solely used cars. That's a lot. That's, that's a pretty dramatic impact there just from used cars. And that, by the way, a lot of people ask me, they're like, Kevin, how, how do these economists come up with these estimates? Do they just pull them out of thin air? No, they, they generally, I mean, it often feels like they pull them out of thin air, but generally they look at other reports and other data sets that would give them clues or indicators to say, okay, well, how can we calculate this to show that uh, month over month inflation is at a certain level or whatever? 
The best case scenario that we could hope for is that we actually start seeing some form of housing disinflation. Unfortunately, we're really not expecting to see any kind of housing disinflation until the second half of this year. And that's problematic because it does mean we could lean towards higher uh, CPI results. That's devastating because, well, uh, the housing inflation has been pretty dang brutal in the last three months. In fact, if you zoom into rent of shelter, at a moment, it felt like it was going to get better. Take a look at this. In, uh, uh, in the December CPI report uh, for, or in the December release for November, basically, what we ended up getting uh, was a 0.7%. So in November, we had a 0.7% increase from shelter, okay? And shelter is really important because rent of shelter alone all of housing works out to somewhere like a 42% rate weight for last year. It's going up to about 44.4% next year. But anyway, just rent of shelter works out to a weight of 32.5%. So in this case, if you take 0.325 and you multiply it by 0.7, you get a loan just from shelter a 0.22 increase to the month-over-month -month numbers for uh, the, the core CPI read. So literally just simply from used cars and potentially housing coming in at 0.7, you could go 0.22 plus 0.11, boom, 3.3 for core. That's how simple it could be, just taking two pieces of the puzzle that only weigh about 46-ish or 36% together, in this case, rent of shelter, not all of housing uh, in total, which would include lodging and some of those other things, uh, and used cars. So just rent a shelter and used cars, boom, you're at 3.3 if we were to come in at that 0.7. Now, the, what we're really waiting for is rent of shelter to actually come in negative, right? Because if we could get like a negative 0.02 or 0.2%, for example, Oh my gosh, you would be you would be having a negative month over month read already of two-thirds of a percent. If you came in with a negative 0.3 on housing at some point in the future because rents are falling, you'd be almost negative uh, a, a full percentage point. It, it'd be phenomenal. It'd be remarkable for how much of a weight we could get to the downside uh, on um uh, for just from housing alone. So anyway, the point of that is just to say that what we're really hoping is that soon we actually start seeing a deterioration here in housing. We haven't found that yet. So the November data was 0.7. The December data, uh, or, or sorry, the, uh, yeah, this, hold on, let's see, November, December, January. No, January is about to come out, so I'm actually went ahead. This is October. November, December, there we go. Okay, so October came in at 0.7, November came in at 0.6, and December popped back up to 0.8. That sucks because it's such a large weight in that CPI read, right? So really the best we could hope for, because we know that used car uh, data is coming in hot, the best we could really hope for is some start to softening in housing. Next big section that would be great would be medical care services, which did, was starting to fall came in at negative 0.6, negative 0.7, but then all of a sudden, boom, it's back to 0.1. So uh, obviously some weakness there would be nice. Transportation services, recreation services, insurances, all of that service sector, right? Education and communication, miscellaneous personal services. These are things where we really want to see some more disinflation. So hopefully we get that 
to sort of lower some of these results that are currently being expected. So what you wanna write these down, CPI month over month is expected to go from 0.3, uh, uh, that's up from 0.3 uh, last time, uh, to, uh, uh, sorry, hold on a second here. This is the month over month core. Sorry, month over month core from last time of 0.3 is expected to go up to 0.4. Uh, last month headline month over month from negative 0.1 to 0.5. And uh, here, you know what? I'll just put them on screen for you so you could see them here. And then that way you could just take a screenshot of this if you wanted to. Headline inflation expected to go uh, to uh, the, the headline number. Uh, hold on. Hold on a sec. Why, why did I write this down so weird? Uh, headline numbers was 6.7. There we go. Uh, so headline inflation expected to go to 6.2% year over year from 6.7 and uh, core expecting to go to 5.5 from 5.7. So there you go. Those are the latest uh, reads that we have as of this morning. So those are the expectations. And, and you know where we're looking for softness. We're looking for softness in housing and medical and personal services, but we're not really expecting those. So we could be getting a meet on inflation here uh, based on what the econo uh, economist projections are. I don't know that a meet would be that great, even though we, certainly we don't want to come in super, you know, hot or above the expectations, but even a meet is kind of like, dang, dude, if we get a meet at month over month core 0.4, that's still 4.8% inflation. That is by no means suggesting that the disinflation process has started yet on housing or uh, personal services which is going to be a little bit of an issue for the Federal Reserve because that's what they're looking for. That's what they're waiting for. Now, Bank of America, I think I mentioned earlier, JP Morgan, it was actually Bank of America. Bank of America has a piece out on this uh, and, and they suggest that there's a risk of what they call pipeline inflation. Now, pipeline inflation, I think is really interesting. So I'll just sort of explain pipeline inflation first and we'll go through a little bit what they're talking about. Pipeline inflation is basically this idea that, hey, look, food costs for, let's say, animal foods at Chewy, for example, because this is exactly what you'll see in the Chewy earnings call. You go through the Chewy earnings call, and what do you see? Oh, the Chewy earnings call says, hey, we still have to increase prices in Q1, but we expect to be stable by Q2, Q3, uh, and, and then we expect not to have to raise prices anymore. This is basically saying there's still embers of inflation that we have, like it's not over, right? There's still embers of inflation that are still propping up inflation and we're going to see those continue to come through. Now, as long as we could see an inflection point in those, great, fantastic. Maybe we could finally hope for an end. And so far it looks like that inflation point is really expected to be Q2, Q3. That's what everyone's expecting for the inflection. Will it actually come? Well, we'll see. Everyone's hoping for it. But then again, hope is not an investing strategy. Now, Bank of America here suggesting the recent slowdown does not mean that disinflation is coming. Worth noting, that's the recent economic slowdown and some data that we've seen in December, though we've seen some of that even re-accelerate since then. Uh, you've got uh, this argu uh, argument by Bank of America that actually took a takes a look at the M3 money supply. The M3 money supply is generally deemed to be the more liquid form. And what you'll find is uh, this piece right here. I'll read it to you because I think it's interesting and then I'll, I'll show you the chart for it. Uh, so they suggest the following. In our view, M3 performs three functions in modern financial systems. First, it serves as the primary vehicle for payments. So in other words, M3 is that money you have ready to pay. It's that money that's like in your Venmo and your PayPal, right? And higher balances that exist in M3 money supply suggest 
higher spending and higher inflationary pressure. Second, M3 money supply is a safe form of savings and they could be seen as a sign of risk aversion. So in other words, high M3 money supply, risk aversion, but also the potential for spending more. It's kind of like being at the top of a roller coaster. You've got a lot of kinetic energy and the capability to spend. Uh, now, the desire to hold money, though, rather than to spend money, would signal lower inflationary pressure, right? Because you're nervous, you're worried about the market. Unique to today, M3 balances are a form of deferred spending, suggests Bank of America. When the service sector shut down, many households allowed their excess spending power to pile up in bank accounts. This was particularly the case where there were also record fiscal transfers to the household uh, sector. So basically saying, look, we didn't spend money, we got a lot of stimmy checks to fill us up. So what does the recent flattening of the M3 money supply mean? In the view of Bank of America, the third story dominates. Households are drawing down excess liquid savings to maintain real consumption in the face of inflation. Here, the U.S. stands out as a country with the largest amount of excess savings, the largest amount of money printing and stimulus that we did, and hence the biggest rundown of those savings in the last year. And unfortunately, they suggest it's unclear when that rebalancing will end, and that as of today, excess balances are still quite high and supportive of spending. And so here they provide a total organization of economically developed countries, uh, and they show you sort of the measure of M3 money supply, which is this dark blue line. And you can see it's obviously not growing anymore because the stimmy payments have stopped. But the actual drawdown in the M3 money supply has been nominal. You've basically only seen a, f seen a flattening of it. You haven't seen it fall yet, but you've seen a flattening of it. And that flattening suggests, look, man, pipeline inflation could keep going for a while. Hate to say it, but it, there's a lot of money still left in the system, says Bank of America. Now, of course, that then begets the idea that, well, what if all that extra money could just end up leading to no recession? Well, that's a potential. But the biggest concern that everybody has right now is, hey, if the Federal Reserve is looking at all this extra money and all this potential leftover pipeline inflation, and we're still seeing lags in when we actually expect housing services, uh, housing itself, and personal care services to start showing declines in CPI, then all that does is reiterate the fact that we have to stay higher for longer. Now, higher for longer is two-folded, right? Higher would mean potentially a higher terminal rate, like 5.5% or maybe even as high as 6%, which some of the bears are now calling for. But it also means no cuts in 2023 which the Federal Reserve has been telling us, but the market did not believe no cuts in 23 until basically uh, last week, <laughs> which is pretty remarkable. So in other words, for the past like two to four months, we've been confident that there would be cuts in 23. And as soon as that jobs data came out, whoop, those ideas went out the window. So how do you prepare for, for this crazy potential CPI release? Uh, well, and then and then what other kind of data do we have? So we've got a few things to go through. Uh, first, 
and, and to kind of interject here, what, what my thought process is, I think there are kind of two ways to look at this. Obviously, it goes without saying, and it kind of sounds redundant at this point to suggest uh, I would be very cautious to be in margin. I would really limit margin, right? Obviously limit margin. But potentially what you do is you, you can double play this, right? And this is something that we're going to be doing in, in, a, in sort of a trading challenge that we're starting next week. Uh, and it's going to be uh, my entire team and myself working the trading challenge together uh, for uh, course members in the Stocks and Psychology of Money group, link down below. But anyway, something that we're thinking of is the following. First, while you limit margin for trade purpose, maybe what you do is you look for low vol plays on things that could momentum move, right? So low vol with momentum play would be your upside bet. Low vol, momentum plays. Your downside bet would probably be, oh, oh and, then, and then these would be plays that have sold off or, or, or have sold off uh, or are at a low price, right? So something that's low price and low vol and has, has some momentum attitude to it, perfect potential upside play in case inflation comes in good. Downside bet, you probably want to look at something that has low vol but has recently run a lot, like a recent double. Uh, and then if you take something that's low vol and potentially a recent double, that's something maybe you look at shorts or puts for. So that would be sort of your way to bet that this inflation report ends up you know, potentially slightly ugly. Uh, so, uh, or you play both of them, right? And you basically straddle this. That's an option. So uh, identifying those companies and coming up with a, 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 an exact trading plan is something that we'll be uh, talking about tomorrow. Uh, midday. So uh, in the course member live, uh, either in the course member live stream or after that, we'll post something. Anyway, now uh, easing Bank of America goes on here to talk about these easing financial conditions that have actually made it a little bit easier for people to spend money. Do keep in mind that mortgage rates ticked up quite a bit here recently. Uh, and there's this talk about credit standards tightening. Now, credit standards tightening is something that we haven't quite yet seen in the Fannie Freddie space for residential housing. Uh, but we are starting to see it in commercial real estate. Now, they, they say here residential mortgage loans, but when I actually looked at the Fed survey, Fannie Freddie loans weren't seeing any tightening. Those are your typical 30-year mortgages. But you were seeing it in non-conventional residential mortgages, so more commercial-style residential mortgages, your non-30-year fixed-rate mortgages. Uh, and, uh, and, and you are seeing a tightening in consumer loans, autos, credit cards, consumer lending. Uh, you're seeing some tightening in the buy now, pay laters and such. Those are things that could also help sort of reduce maybe some of that excess demand, that excess spending, and maybe help push inflation down. Uh, but you've still got this lingering pipeline inflation and that, that being the big fear that, uh, that, that everyone is looking at right now. Uh, of course, we did also have an acceleration again of energy prices which we think would be hopefully a temporary phenomenon. But we'll see as, uh, as China reopens if that temporary uh, energy shock will go away. Now, Barclays also has a piece on what to expect for inflation uh, sort of going forward. Uh, and the first thing they talk about, and, and we've, we've really talked a lot about this already, is this idea that, oh, maybe China's reopening is going to create this insane 
uh, you know, explosion of inflation. And so far, what we're seeing is that the Chinese are not spending as much on goods. They're spending more on services. So you're seeing a lot of travel. You're seeing uh, more hotel and entertainment spend on the reopening of China than you are uh, on goods spend, which, which kind of makes sense, kind of aligns with what we've seen out here. That could potentially keep pressure stable, though, on manufacturing and supply chains and commodity prices, which is good. Now, obviously, you still expect some kind of boost in commodities, potentially, unless that's already priced in by traders. But this service spending uh, could be good, in my opinion. I've mentioned this quite a bit for a company like Starbucks. We'll see. Uh, and, and here, even Barclays talks about the idea that maybe manufacturing will remain stable. And that ultimately, any kind of positive shock in China uh, probably ends up benefiting a country like Europe or, or a China country like Germany uh, or other countries in Europe more so than it does in the United States based on sort of the spillover effects related to uh, Europe and Chinese uh, trade. Regarding the United States, you have uh, Barclays uh, under this belief that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we'll be leaning in sort of a, a potential super shallow recession. Uh, and they suggest over here that global PMIs really indicate that we may have hit a bottom in the fourth quarter. Now that's really interesting because if we hit a bottom here, then then is there a risk that inflationary pressures come back as we come out of this potential manufacturing bottom? And I think the answer to that is, yeah, absolutely there's a risk of that. Uh, in fact, you have uh, a piece over here where they start looking at the 12-month wage tracker. I didn't like that they looked at the 12-month wage tracker. I think they should be looking at the three-month wage tracker because obviously wages impact services inflation. So I went and undug that data myself and I looked at the wage tracker on a three-month rolling basis and, and you do have declines. Uh, you could see that on screen here. This is the wage growth tracker. And even though the declines are or slow on overall wages, you are starting to see that disinflation occur in wages. You're seeing it in job switchers. You did see a slight tick up, which I thought was weird in the median wage growth for people with colleges. I thought it would have been the opposite, that you would have seen a slight tick up maybe in the like hourly uh, retail and hospitality workers. You didn't actually see that. You actually saw that in college degree folks, which is weird because it seems like that's where more of the layoffs are happening. Here's, for example, your paid hourly where you see that inflection to the downside, services to the downside, but maybe this is a good thing. So all in all, you have a setup for uh, what's gonna be one of the most widely paid attention to inflation reports here in a while. And the reason it's going to be paid attention to so closely is because it's really one of these inflation reports where we already know it's coming in hotter than previously, right? It's coming in hotter than before. Uh, and part of that is because of, uh, of, of energy prices uh, shooting up for headline. Part of it has to do with used autos. And uh, that's unfortunate. So we already have this baseline expectation that it's not going to be clear disinflation, right? We already expect it won't be clear disinflation. We hope it will be, but again, hope is not an investing strategy. So so the, the fact that the expectation is no clear disinflation is initially not great because it means the market is probably going to position itself bearishly, right? Bearish positioning, because what are the headlines going to be? The headlines are going to be inflation re-accelerates if we hit those expectations. 
Now, the hope scenario uh, is that we end up getting some kind of miss, right? That's the hope scenario. A hope scenario in a miss would probably be more bullish than a meet would be bearish. I'll say that again. If a meet has already been priced in, which is possible, maybe a meet is priced in, then any kind of miss, like a softer number, would actually potentially be very good. Uh, uh, any kind of any kind of miss, that would be the hope scenario, uh, and probably one that there isn't much upside hedging for. So I would expect that there's limited upside hedging. These would be like shorter term call options, right? Uh, and that's an assumption. Uh, but I think you want to look for particular stocks. For example, you look at a company like Tesla. You can see that the put-call ratio just moved up from 1.3 to 1.5 on a put-call ratio, which means you've got about 50% more puts than you have calls. And in my opinion, that's very bearish positioning because Tesla has run so much, right? And so you want to, in my opinion, look for those sort of opportunities where because there's such bearish positioning, maybe there's an opportunity to actually, in a weird way, take a limited upside hedge in that sort of positioning. But that doesn't mean you want to be, you don't want to be hedged to the downside as well. So that's that's just something else to think about as you're going into this CPI report on Tuesday. It's probably going to be a bigger deal than the prior CPI reports that we've gotten because the prior CPI reports have just been trend down, trend down, trend down, trend down. And now we have this, what we already expect to be uh, a move up. Now I've previously said in the past, I like it when the expectations are high because it's easier to beat to the downside. And that's still true, but it, you know, it's a little, it's a little, it's a little bit hopium. So, you know, we'll see. <laughs> All we could say here is fingers crossed. Uh, obviously, we expect wide disinflation by the middle of, uh, of 2023. But uh, to plan for it now is, uh, is certainly uh, hope-esque, dare I say. <laughs> anyway, good luck on Tuesday. I'll be streaming it live so you'll see my reaction. I should probably get some tequila out and have it ready because uh, it'll just be tequila and nap time if it comes in bad. All right, so let's take a peek at uh, some, of, some of your all uh, comments here. Is there really room for a miss? Sure there is. Uh, let's see here. Then we've got Tesla due for a pullback. Well, you got a lot of people saying that, but then it also suggests that, you know, it's, it's prior... Uh, um, its prior fall was fundamentally based, you know, right? Like no, six months ago, nobody would have told you Tesla $200 is due for a pullback. People would be like, man, that's low. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see here. The balloons are not detected as fast as a missile. They're for they are loading the balloons with bombs. Oh gosh. That's a jaded way to look at it. Uh yeah, we do. I mean, we've talked about bonds a lot yesterday. I mean, I'll reiterate the bottom line for you. Yeah, we're at the greatest inversion since the 80s, which implies uh, you know, substantial cuts in the future because something's likely to break and that potentially you have a recession over the next uh uh, you know, year and a half or so. When when that is, you know, it's just speculation at this point. Fanny Freddy are tightening as the new level price adjustments. I have not seen that on the Fannie Mae loan level price adjustments. Loan level, let's see, price adjustments, Fannie Freddie. I I mean, maybe maybe there was a recent, like I haven't seen that in the last adjustment report. They seemed relatively stable, but I'll look at it. Ha, 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 ha. 
Yeah, the, I only have the the one that we got for January. Basically, showed that uh, they made it. They loosened credit standards for lower credit standards and high uh, increased some of the standards for higher credits. I mean, they basically averaged out. How much does the balloon cost to make? Well, that's a good question. If we knew what was on it, maybe we could tell you. <laughs> that's the big thing right now. Is you've got a lot of folks. Uh, uh, who who uh, are frustrated that we haven't yet revealed all the pieces that go into this balloon? So uh, you know we'll we'll, we'll see. Uh, let's see here, balloons being sent. Throw out diagnose. I used to diagnose situations as a job in the past. Sometimes you throw some testers out there and see how systems respond. Yeah. So China's probably like, oh, looks like all three of our balloons made it. Who knows? Maybe they launched 15. <laughs> uh, it's kind of wild. Nobody knows. Yeah, I'm not the biggest bull on boxable, honestly. I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll give you my, my sincere thoughts on uh, boxable. Okay. Um, now, now these are just my thoughts, uh, and I don't want these to be construed as like, in any means. Let me, let me rephrase this. Okay. I want to be clear about this. When talking about Boxable, I'm not the biggest bull, and I want to just be very, very careful with what I say because some of the things I say are uh, potentially based on outdated information. Uh, maybe I'm being too bearish, but let me be very clear. This idea that you can build a $50,000 casita, great. Maybe before the pandemic. And that was done. But the $50,000 casita, and this is something that bothers me as somebody who used to be a licensed contractor, operated the licensed contracting business, passed the licensed contracting test. Uh, I, I've gone through real estate investing for uh, well over a decade, and, and I, I deal with this sort of stuff. What's remarkable, we're almost 13 years in real estate, it's crazy. What's remarkable about the uh, boxable casita is that you have to remember the $50,000 casita pre-inflation days does not include a roof. It doesn't include cladding on the outside of the building, which would be like your stucco or siding. It does not include the foundation. It does not include the plumbing or electrical lines to get you there. It does not include the permits or the architecture fees to get you there. It doesn't include all of those things. What you're getting is a box for $50,000 pre-inflation. That's probably now a $70,000 box post-inflation. And you're getting limited customizability, obviously, and, and that makes sense because you're trying to manufacture these in mass. However, the massive concern that I have is that most of the sales of boxable casitas have been demo units or they have been to the CIA for Guantanamo Bay. And Guantanamo Bay, according to a very detailed report from the New York Times, I know a lot of people, they put the tinfoil hat on, they're like, I don't like the New York Times, I don't trust the word they say, that's fine. I don't particularly like the New York Times myself. I have the honor of having a, a, a shit post about me in the New York Times. <laughs> uh, actually, I think I have two. <laughs> no, one's not that bad though. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> so I have the honor of being in the New York Times. So I, okay, I, I get to bag on them too. But the point is, they have a very, and you can just search this yourself, Boxable Casita, Guantanamo Bay. Okay, yeah, that's where you go like waterboard and torture terrorists, okay? Uh, unofficially, officially. Anyway, uh, apparently the CIA ordered uh, 150 approximately of these boxable casitas, and because they don't come with a roof, most of them ended up turning into a moldy crap show. 
because you have a massive logistic nightmare of basically, okay, here are your 150 units. And then it's like, well, great, but the roofer's not available yet. And so the time, like being able to time the delivery of these is a problem, especially in the tropics. So they cover them with blue tarps and now they're like molding up. Now you can point the finger at Guantanamo. You could point the finger at the process. You could point the finger at Boxable. I don't know. But the point is when, when Boxable tells us that they have manufactured hundreds of these Boxable casitas, the reality is 150 of them are molding in Guantanamo Bay. And most of the other ones are just freaking demo units so the company can raise more money. So in my opinion, what, what, what I'm seeing with Boxable is a company that has apparently a manufacturing line number one, which is really just for like five units of a demo unit or, or whatever. Maybe that's where they somehow came up with the first 150. I'm not sure. Then they have the Vegas facility, which which I, I would like to be proven wrong on this. So I'd, I'd like to tour uh, the boxable uh, Vegas facility. Uh, I don't know if after this video they'd still invite me. I just I want I I'd want to be upfront with people. Okay, when when I, I I like to give my reasonable criticisms because if anything I want the company to succeed. We have a massive housing crisis. Housing is unaffordable, right? And so the idea of a fifty thousand dollar box, which is probably now seventy thousand dollars plus foundation, architecture, uh, roof, and cladding, you're probably at one hundred twenty five to one hundred fifty thousand dollar project, right? Being real here, the idea of 50K is pretty much clickbait. You're probably at about $150,000 project. I'd like to be proven wrong though. And again, just like with Arkimoto, I made a, a warning video. After I met with the CEO, I'm like, you should not be going into bikes. You should not be trying to license out your projects so that other people can manufacture them. You should take one thing, the deliverator or whatever you want, mass produce it as soon as possible. But I think once they realize that manufacturing is hard, they shut down, they gave up, and now they're going bankrupt. I gave that warning over nine months ago, well before, actually, no, it was, it was somewhere around March. No, it might've been March. Yeah, maybe March of 2022 or so when the stock was still worth a whole lot more. Uh, I posted that warning. But anyway, uh, the point is, those are the similar kind of warnings that I'm seeing with Boxable. I'm seeing this warning with Boxable that uh, now they're, they're raising more money because manufacturing is hard and they're not actually able to properly manufacture out of their second facility. So now the idea is, well, we have a lot of reservations. Well, of course you do because it's an underpriced, unrealistic unit. You're not gonna sell these things for 50 grand anyway, but these reservations help you raise more money from investors and now, because you realize your second facility is already inadequate, even though it's new, you want to have a third factory? This sounds bad. Uh, I'm probably one of the only people that's actually bearish on Boxable right now, but I, I, maybe I'm too critical, okay? Maybe I'm being too critical, but I'm just saying, uh, I understand costs. I understand how hard it is to hire people. I understand how hard it is. Uh, and, and I understand I, I know very little about manufacturing, but I know it's very hard. Uh, and anytime I look at companies that are manufacturers, I see the pain. I feel the pain. I get it. Manufacturing sucks, especially in an environment of supply chain issues, especially in that sort of environment. And then the reality is Boxable got a massive boost because lumber prices were skyrocketing and they don't use lumber. So everybody's like, this is fantastic. You have a lumber alternative. Well, that was fantastic during the pandemic, but guess what's happening now? Lumber prices have plummeted. It's probably cheaper to build a guest unit or a casita uh, out of lumber than it is out of the composites that they use right now. So 
you've got massive issues with Boxable. Manufacturing issues, the fact that the reality is the $50,000 unit's probably not $50,000 anymore. So the original price is clickbait, but beyond that, people, don't, people who are investing into Boxable, in my opinion, aren't realizing that you have to get cladding for the outside of the property. You have to get a roof on the unit. You gotta get a foundation. You gotta get electrical. You gotta get plumbing. You gotta get a sewer line. You got the water line, the gas line. You gotta get all of these things run to the property. Maybe you don't do gas. Maybe it's just electricity. That's fine. But in some areas, gas is actually more affordable. Unless, of course, you you, you don't wanna go for a gas a stove or cooktop because that's unpopular now in certain areas or they're getting banned in some of the liberal areas, which there are a lot of people who are frustrated about that. Uh, this this idea that uh, uh, you know oh it's it's you know woke to go for an induction cooktop uh, you know what's in, insane and I don't I, I don't know if I have that video posted somewhere but uh, I used to I used to have it on my website but it's been a long time but uh, about uh, twelve years ago I uh, I had uh, let me see if I can find it about twelve years ago I uh, it might have even been longer ago about a long time ago I posted a video and it was short it was like 30 seconds it was before short videos were a thing before TikTok was a thing I posted a video talking about induction cooktops and how phenomenal they are uh, oh here it is July 13th uh, 2013 this is insane uh, it is is it public sometimes I uh, oh yeah here it is okay hold on I'll just show it to you uh, okay, you ready for this? This is insane. This is a long time ago. I don't even know why I'm showing this, but I'm gonna do it anyway. You ready for this? It's 42 seconds long. Look at that, posted nine years ago. I get asked, hey, Kevin, why did you buy an electric induction cooktop when you could have had gas? You have the gas line right there. Well, here's my answer. The first reason, it's easier to clean. There are no grates to scrape or clean under. It's flat. Second reason is safety. Been heating this for a couple minutes. Probably shouldn't heat it anymore. There's no flame. Boom! Put my hand right on it. It's cold. The only thing that heats up is the bottom of the pan. The third reason, it cooks faster. Some say 30% faster than gas. That way when I need to cook organic corn pasta, I can do it faster. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> oh my god. So... And again, I don't know where that came from, uh, but uh, but the point is, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, this is like a giant tangent uh, on, on induction cooktops, but uh, big fan, okay? And this is before the whole like, oh, you're woke if you go induction, like induction's awesome. You want grates? Barbecue outside. Induction is phenomenal. And don't talk to me about conduction, like the stupid spirally electric ones, the ones you have in like the poor apartments, which I grew up in. I grew up with the stupid little spiral coils that turn orange and it's the cooktop that's really old because you're poor and you don't have a new one and it sucks and it takes forever to heat up and it's really hot and you burn yourself on it, it's just trash. Not talking about that, induction's great. Anyway, off that rant. Um, let's now get back to Boxable. So, so you have massive problems with uh, Boxable. In my opinion, again, number one, it's the real cost of being done with the project probably exceeds the actual cost of just conventional framing. The second problem that you have is I don't think the company is capable of properly scaling manufacturing. They show off their manufacturing facility, 
but I am very nervous that the manufacturing facility they're scaling out or, or they're, they're showing off, they're already suggesting they're outgrowing. That makes me more nervous. Uh, and, and then the third thing is, uh, I think that, um, uh, so number one would be uh, uh, the all of the extra costs that go into it. Number two would be the inability to scale. And number three is, I think the inflationary costs are gonna make the $50,000 unit 70,000, so the base price is gonna be a lot more expensive. So I'm, I'm a bear. I'm I'm not very very bullish on uh, on Boxable, so you know I appreciate the question here, uh, and the, these are just I hope to be proven wrong, but uh, because again I do think that we we are in a massive housing crisis, and uh, I think we need cheaper housing. We also need uh, uh, cities and and uh, states that are willing to support more housing. I was blown away by this, but the L.A. Times. Uh, actually just exposed Governor Newsom for something I've been talking about for a long time. Long time. I mean, ever since this bill passed, this SB9 uh, passed, I've been complaining that basically it's impossible to build homes uh, through SB9 in California. So SB9 came out and the suggestion was, oh, we're going to let people turn garages into guest units or build guest units in their backyards. And the city has to approve that within 60 days. I spent two years going through the approval on process on two properties and it was hell. It was hell to get approval and I still didn't get approval on one of them because they said, oh, well, we just decided it's in a fire zone and we don't want you to build there. And it's like, after two years, you tell me that y'all are assholes. I mean, that is California, right? But look at that. SB9, and, and this was supposed to actually be a big boon to companies like Boxable because people could then get approval and then go build a unit in a single family home and throw a Boxable down. This is actually more bad news. SB9 was introduced two years ago. This was while I was running against Gavin Newsom for governor. And uh, he's over at the Google campus bragging about how he's passing this new housing bill. But then again, Governor Newsom's a total fraud and a failure at doing anything uh, with balls in the state of California because he wants to run for president and he doesn't want to rock the boat. Fine. But here's the LA Times, who's basically the mouthpiece for Gavin Newsom, bagging on him, saying the bill he passed so far is failing. Uh, and so the bill received bipartisan support to add housing, whatever, whatever, whatever. Neither argument for adding housing has uh, been uh, proven so far. Across 13 cities studied in the state, SB9 projects are limited to non-existent, according to UC Berkeley. Hey, I got into Berkeley. I didn't end up going to Berkeley. Uh, I went to UCLA instead. But anyway, the report focused on cities considered high opportunity areas for duplexes because they've reported significant increases in the construction of ADUs, known as granny flats, casitas, or ADUs in recent years. ADUs, small freestanding homes, whatever, whatever, whatever. The cities are listed right here. Okay, great. San Diego, Anaheim, so on and so forth. By the end of November, cities had collectively received 282 applications for SB9 projects, had approved only 53. Dude, I'm one of the people getting screwed by this. Los Angeles accounted for the bulk of applications receiving 211 and only approved 38. What a fraud these cities are. What a freaking fraud. You have this, and, and I mean, we should know this about California already, but you have the governor who's like, we are going to allow people to build guest units. So people spend tens of thousands of dollars with architects to, to do what the state law says. And what does the, the city government say? Yeah, we'll sit on these because we're the city of Los Angeles and we're a real fraud. Oh my God, California's government sucks. Applications for divided lots seem even less popular. Just 100 applications were submitted. Only 28 had been approved. 
Uh, SB9 is only in its first year of implementation. We should give it more time to judge as if it's effective. No, David Garcia, why don't you spend two years and $50,000 on paperwork trying to get two projects turned into SB9 projects yourself and then tell me if we should give it time. It's ineffective because the cities don't give a shit and you're an idiot who obviously doesn't realize it. Sorry, I'm upset because I'm trying to provide more housing in the state of California and it's basically impossible. And when the LA Times and a study from Berkeley, both very liberal institutions, are reiterating that the government of California is an abject failure, you know it's probably worse than it even is being talked about. So, to circle back into Boxable, California was supposed to be one of the markets where it was easy to plop a casita down in a boxable den. That's why they're manufacturing them in Vegas, because it's right next to California, which is supposed to be a big old market for building casitas easily. Yeah, there goes that idea out the window. So if you need a fourth reason why I'm nervous about boxable, it's because California is a fraud. But then again, here I am still living in California and, and complaining about it. The good news is I've learned my lesson. And the lesson I learned is don't build guest units in California. Instead, buy single family homes and basically over the long term, watch them go up in value because the government is too stupid to add more housing or housing availability. So if you wanna get rich in California, just buy real estate. And yeah, you've got a nice little market dip over here because mortgage rates skyrocketed thanks to the Fed. That's the macro cycle. But in the long term, California is probably a great place to buy housing because the government is moronic. And that's not good for Boxable. So how's that for a rant about housing for you? <laughs> move to Texas. You know, actually, yeah, if you move to Texas, you could basically just buy some two by fours and start building. <laughs> Obviously a little exaggerated, but uh, yeah, buy, buy a tough shed and drywall it into a mini home. You know, the problem with that, okay, and then fairness to California, the problem with that is you are in an earthquake zone and you do need to build things according to standard, okay? <laughs> what credit score should I have before buying a single family house for yourself? Who cares? Just get a good deal and buy uh, when the market is right. I think the market's gonna be right later this year. Obviously, the higher credit score you have, the lower the pricing is, but if you get a good deal, who cares, man? Once you fix your credit, you can you can uh, uh, hopefully be in a position to refinance to a lower rate. But uh, I think if you get a great property, uh, you know, at a great deal, you can increase your net worth. It doesn't matter if your credit's 620 or 740. You know, 740 is obviously ideal. But I wouldn't, you know, wait to be perfect to buy. Kevin, closing on a house in three weeks. Should I lock my rate before? Okay, well, I mean, that's just pure speculation, right? Uh, I mean, at this point, I think markets are positioning in a bearish mood. If we get a miss on the CPI, you could actually, in my opinion, see a substantial plummet in rates. Uh, you know, here's the thing though, and this is evil, okay? You want, you know, this is this is why you watch my channel. Sorry to the lenders who are going to hear this, but um, here's the the asshole move. The asshole move is you lock your rate, and then if rates go higher, your rate's locked. You're good. If rates plummet after you locked your rate, you call a different lender. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's, it's really mean, but that's one way you can double hedge yourself. Sorry, okay, listen, that's why people sign up for programs on building their wealth, link down below, because Kevin's got a whole ton of ideas that nobody talks about on the internet, that you get a nice list 
and the real estate investing course and the do yourself property management course and the stocks and psychology and money course. I'm chock full of ideas like that. <laughs> anyway, okay. So, um, all right, let's move on here. So what, 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 that was a lot. So that was, um, that was a long housing rant there. Uh, anyway, let's see what else we have. Yeah, oh my gosh, almost at 30,000 now. That's incredible. Mm -mm -mm. Uh, all right, so groceries continue to go up. I don't know, ma'am. If you're shopping at Whole Foods, they're starting to lower prices. Best money I've ever spent. Oh, thanks, ma'am. Appreciate that. <laughs> Play the game, don't be played. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Homemaker, home builders are screwed. That's right. Robin, Robin says, California is right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> you think about nano dimension? I don't know. Uh, it, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm not a big fan of 3D printing. I don't, I, I've, uh, you can actually search my video back when this sucker was like 16 bucks where I'm kind of like very bearish on it. But just type into YouTube, meet Kevin Nano Dimension, and you'll get my full opinion on it. Hey man, can I spend $200,000 to speak with you in your private jet? <laughs> no, you can actually shadow me for a lot less. But yeah, if you do want to shadow me, uh, you can shadow me. Uh, we might go fly uh, somewhere, but uh, uh, we're upgrading the plane right now. I should have it back this week. Uh, and then we're, we're going to be uh, probably exploring with a lot of shadows, uh, either locally or, f or flying places or whatever. But yeah, you can shadow me. Uh, it's linked down below. It's like I don't know, it's like three grand, thirty-nine hundred, something like that. I don't know. The the link to shadow me is down below. And uh, yeah, you, you, can, you can absolutely shadow me. It's kind of cool. We'll be traveling a lot. Uh, most pe A lot of people recently have just been shadowing me in person but in, in our office, but that's because they don't really care. I mean, I don't think anybody's shadowing me to go travel somewhere. It's shadowing to, uh, to shadow, to, to talk real estate and, and to brainstorm. Yeah, so it's been kind of fun. So looked into the Northern Virginia market. No, I haven't yet. Uh, House Hacks pretty excited. Uh, yeah, I, I, I should be back up in the air this week. I'm hoping Wednesday we're back up and flying. So my schedule is basically perfect, perfected now, which is really fun. But I should be back up in the air on, um, on Wednesday, which is going to be really fun. Uh, it's actually been a nice little break, though, from flying. It's been about a three-week break. And uh, as, our, as our windshield gets upgraded... It's it's basically one of the heating elements in the uh, on the um, just one portion of the uh, captain's windshield uh, had a warranty upgrade, and uh, that's done now. Uh, so uh, and we also got our Wi-Fi enabled, which is six. We got five G Wi-Fi. It's great. Uh, I'm gonna com I want I'm tempted to compare that to S uh, Starlink and uh, the, the the SpaceX service, but. Just to install a Starlink Wi-Fi antenna is like 200 grand, so it's kind of, kind of insane. <laughs> uh, could House Hack go international? It's called stalking, not shadowing. I don't think it's stalking. Honestly, we've had such wonderful shadows come. Everybody's been been uh, it has been fantastic uh, that that we've had. What if we want to shadow you in a specific area? Um, you know, we don't do that at this point. Uh, you know, we might be able to do that if we're like, hey, we're already going to a certain place and you can meet us there. But, you know, we, we don't provide, we're not like a, a transportation service, you know? We, we, you know, like, that's not what we do. 
It's not like you can call me and be like, yo, I want to fly here. I, I don't do that, you know. Uh, it's, uh, it's if you want to shadow me, you're coming for me. And if we're traveling that day, then we're either driving or we're flying. Or if we're local that day, then we're local that day. So, uh, oh, oh. But, uh, yeah, anyway, um, it, it, course members get a discount on shadowing. Yeah, absolutely. And just uh, use the course member code, which we talk about in Discord, or uh, just email kevin at meetkevin.com. But yeah, um, we're really excited to be flying again. Do you like your plane? I love it. Would you buy the same with the knowledge you have now? I would because of the efficiency of it. I, I'm very tempted by the ideas of uh, larger planes, but the problem with larger planes is uh, the fuel economy, the next leg up on fuel economy, you're looking at a double. Uh, I don't need it for my mission because my mission is mostly day trips. And uh, larger planes go further distances, but I don't need to go further distances because further distances would imply no longer day trips. So the mission profile is not a fit. And then for larger flights, you end up having more wear and tear on your tires, on your brakes. Uh, you're burning more fuel in the sky with a larger plane. And the sucker I have goes fast, man. I mean, we're talking 535 miles an hour. This sucker is fast. It's really, really good. Uh, and they're, they're, it's, it's, it's fantastic. So I'm very excited. T-Mobile offers 5G Wi-Fi. Not that big of a deal. $45 a month. Um, plane Wi-Fi is like five grand a month. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, home and vehicle industry is about to embark on a time no one has seen before, but feared. What? <laughs> I don't know what you mean. <laughs> if you work at a company like Rivian and they give you stock, would it be good to just sell it? You know, I think I, I generally like the idea of uh, of if if you're at a, a, a risky company like Rivian, diversifying, uh, it, it mostly because if you if the company goes bankrupt, now you've lost your stock and your job, and you're in a pretty bad situation, right? Uh, yeah, that that would be that would be not great. No, I, I don't think the seller sold me the plane because he knew the windshield needed replacing. And he did dis, he disclosed the issue of the the uh, this this warranty upgrade coming for this heating element. So it's not like that was a big surprise. I think the big surprise was the time it would take to do the upgrade. Maybe uh, you know, but I, I I don't I don't suspect there was uh, there was a maliciousness in the intent there. Uh, uh, so no, I, I, I would, I would never say anything bad about, about my, my seller. So at happy, I could tell by your com. Okay. Uh, <laughs> interesting. Anyway, interesting questions that y'all have here. <laughs> Do you like boodles? I like uh, labradoodles. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's see what else do we have to cover here. We got another piece that we want to cover here, but I'll look to see if there's uh, any last minute question here, and then we'll go into this next piece. Okay. Yeah, usually usually we do 100% write-off, year one for the plan. Absolutely. Who cares about a Lambo or Ferrari when you own a <laughs> Yeah, it's expensive, man. $13 million planes, a lot. Uh, so... Windshields are like 60 grand. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing to fear but fear itself. I love that quote. All right. Someone says, Nick T. Did Nick T really just tweet? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so funny. That's my next piece. 
is is what Nick T's talking about here. That's so funny. My next piece is the Nova. Dude, are you serious? That's literally my next piece. Oh, Nick. Come on, man. That's so funny. Yeah, I cuz it's 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 his own piece, but that was that's funny. So, uh <laughs> yeah, he's just retweeting his own piece. That's funny. Uh yeah, that's it's the same article. Yeah, he just tweeted the hard landing or no landing. Uh right here. That's his piece. And literally the piece that I was going to talk about next was that, and I already have it highlighted and everything. <laughs> that's fine. But but there's I've I've more going into I have the basis of where his piece comes from as well so we'll talk about that uh, and that's from I believe that was the JPM piece stand by let's get that ready all right but we'll get into it I, I I like Nick T I like covering his stuff so I'm a big fan I think you should follow him on Twitter big fan and it's just funny. All right, let's get that ready here, and then we'll get going. So, yeah, okay, we talked builders. Oh, right, and then I've got that prepared. I've got Pepsi and Unilever because he mentions that, and we've got the J.P. Morgan view. Okay, good. So, first... Stand by. Okay. Oh, yeah, 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 this is the transitory and disinflation piece. Okay, all right, good. Uh, how much is jet fuel per gallon? It depends where you fuel it up. Is it gas or diesel? It's jet fuel. It's jet fuel. Kerosene is what it is. Um, but it depends where you fuel up. If you go to a big airport, it could be eight bucks a gallon. If you go to a small airport, it's like five bucks a gallon. It's crazy, the, the, the disparity. So basically only go to small airports. <laughs> big airports suck anyway, because you sit there and... Uh, uh, and, and, and you end up fighting uh, for takeoff. Kevin is copying Nikki T. No, I actually don't. Uh, I, I talk about Nikki T, and I think I add value to what he's saying. Uh, and the, he looks at a lot of the similar uh, articles, I think, or, or uh, economist reports that you get from Morgan Stanley or JPM or otherwise uh, that everyone does in the industry, including myself. So I, I don't think there's copying. I think uh, I I know there are a lot of people that just copy other people's content. I I like to give credit and add value. That's my thesis. I think that's very different from from copying content. Copying content is it, it, that's very normal on TikTok, right? On TikTok, people it's like oh what went what went well? People just copy the script of someone else and then say the same thing with a different face, and and the TikTok algo still pushes it. Uh, it's it's pretty insane. Uh, but, uh, yeah, okay. So, uh, let's go, uh, the cost for a larger aircraft is rationalized by number of tr passengers transported. Sure. But you have to ask yourself, how many do you really need? I mean, you, you know, my plane carries nine passengers and two pilots. Like it's a lot of people, man. That's already a lot of people. <laughs> A lot of people. Uh, Kevin, I've never hear your opinion on term life or educate people on term life. Oh, yeah. Generally, I think the fees on a lot of those things are agonizingly high. Uh, so anyway, okay. Let's talk now about this no landing idea. The no, I, mean, I, I like to call it the recession 
is canceled. Ooh, that sounds juicy, doesn't it? <laughs> Here we go. The recession is canceled, or is it? And that's the big question we've got to talk about now, because now there's a big debate going on on Wall Street about are we going to experience a hard landing, a soft landing, or no landing at all? That's what's being debated by economists now. And the Fed's mouthpiece, Nikki T, is adding some insight and some commentary into it. And we'll analyze that as well as providing more perspective. But first, we got to look at what JP Morgan has to say. And JP Morgan isn't very excited. JP Morgan suggests that disinflation that we are seeing in markets now might end up just being transitory which this is basically egg in the face of the Federal Reserve. It's the idea that, hey, Federal Reserve, y'all thought that inflation going up was going to be transitory, and what ended up happening? It ended up skyrocketing and lasting a whole lot longer and being a whole lot bigger than you thought it was going to be. And while that might be what every woman in America wants to hear, it's not what we want to hear in economies. Now you've got folks like Marco Klonovic over at JPM suggesting, hey, hey, wait a minute. Now you're arguing we're seeing disinflation, Mr. J-Pal? Yeah, well, we think your disinflation might end up being transitory. And this next upcoming CPI report could show us how transitory it ends up being, that disinflation. In other words, right back to inflation. And JP Morgan, of course, picks up on this idea that jobs growth is pouring cold water on the idea of a soft landing, uh, that uh, ultimately jobs growth is reheating the economy. They also suggest that 68% of S&P 500 companies have beat EPS estimates. Now, while that's lower than the long-term average of 75%, it's still pretty good. It shows things aren't actually as bad as it seems. And wage growth, while it seems to be tentatively moderating because of higher job openings, PMI starting to rotate back up again, and uh, reports from, uh, uh, from earnings showing that maybe things aren't that bad, maybe we might end up having to crimp the economy substantially further, which this is basically JPM arguing, hey, you know, you've got a situation right now where, look, you might end up having a Fed that has to tight, tighten a lot more than they think, while at the same time, companies are choosing, well, do we lay off people or continue to see margins suffer? Because margins are the big buffer right now. And JP Morgan suggests, in their belief, the stock market is going to end up hitting an air pocket in Q2 or Q3. This is all in reference to kind of like the, the uh, soft landing idea. And it's basically suggesting, hey, if the plane comes in for a soft landing, that's one thing. JP Morgan thinks we're still flying, but we're going to hit an air pocket and kind of fall in like a sort of turbulent pattern in Q2 and Q3. And the reason we're going to do that, in their opinion, is because the Federal Reserve is likely to hike more aggressively. And that is going to end up hitting earnings and especially stocks a lot more than individuals are expecting. In fact, JP Morgan throws cold water on this idea that, hey, look, we broke the 200-day moving average. There's a golden cross. We've got all these technicals suggesting to potentially the beginning of a new business cycle. And what does JP Morgan say? No, we are not at the beginning of a new business cycle or, or, or you know, uh, economic cycle. We are actually at the tail end of the current crash. 
and that actually means there's more pain to come, and this idea of a soft landing is nonsense. Well, to counter this sort of bearish view from JP Morgan that the soft landing is nonsense and that things are going to get worse and if anything, we should actually be looking at a hard landing. Now to counter that, you actually have this idea of, well, maybe we shouldn't be talking about a landing at all. And this is what Nikki T has been tweeting. He posted this article uh, being published in today's print. Uh, actually, my newspaper should be sitting on my front lawn right now. I'm a big fan, by the way, of reading print, but I, I'm also a fan of reading digitally. I do both. Uh, and the print is great because you don't miss anything, right? Uh, I actually saw Charlie Munger's op-ed in print, and I'm like, this is so cool, just because it feels old school. But anyway, uh, so hard or soft landing. Some economists say neither if growth accelerates. Now, this is very interesting because you have JP Morgan suggesting we're going for the hard landing. You've got technical analysts suggesting, no, we're going for a soft landing because we broke the 200-day moving average and the numbers just aren't that bad. You know, companies aren't missing that terribly. So, well, what does Nick T say in his article and where can we add some perspective? Well, he says the following. Surprising strength in hiring and consumer spending last month, together with signs that demand for autos in the housing market might be stabilizing after a decline, now have some economists pointing to a third scenario that seemed improbable just a few weeks ago, an actual economic growth upturn. In other words, a no landing scenario. Now that's really interesting because everybody's been talking about a landing and now there's talk about what if there's just no landing at all? What if we don't actually have to land the economy? What if we just keep on flying? Could be fantastic. Now auto prices have moved up, but it's worth noting that mortgage rates, uh, which, which somewhat potentially signals a, a bottom in uh, the used auto market, but this idea that the housing market is picking up, I think is a little bit of clickbait because unfortunately, even though uh, mortgage rates fell in December. Look just on screen now here at the tick up that we're seeing in mortgage rates going into February. They're ticking right back up. At a 740 credit score, you're still sitting at nearly 6.5% at 6.44 for a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. That's not necessarily conducive with a housing market that's going to pick up again. If anything, it's conducive with a housing market that's going to fall again. But anyway, let's keep going and add some perspective for this idea of a harder soft landing. So, Here's an individual who talks about there's a huge reluctance to admit the obvious, which is this idea that the economy is re-accelerating full stop, says this particular individual from the research firm Renaissance Macro. Now, this is the idea that, look, people gaining jobs is actually a good thing. Remember Jerome Powell's dual mandate. His dual mandate is stable prices and maximum employment. If we have stable prices, he does not need to force a recession. That is very important to remember. Jerome Powell does not need to force a recession and create unemployment as long as we do not have the symptoms of a wage price spiral, which so far, it doesn't look like we have the symptoms of a wage price spiral. If anything, it's becoming easier for companies like Starbucks and Walmart and Chipotle to hire individuals. And as you saw with Lyft and Uber, there's been a massive rise in the number of people willing to drive. 36% increase at, uh, uh, at Uber, and as Lyft calls it, an extreme increase in the availability of labor at Lyft, leading to a reduction of prices, leading to a reduction in peak pricing, leading to a reduction in margins for companies like Lyft. Now, moving on, uh, there's some talk about here how the Federal Reserve has raised rates at the fastest pace since the 80s. 
And while wage growth slowed in January, there was an increase in hourly uh, hours worked, which kind of implies this idea that, hey, maybe no wage price spiral, but you're actually having an economy that's recovering a bit, which is good. Now, I think this still calls for patience in real estate because of the, the, the uh, pay, tick up again in rates. But, you know, you've got this idea now that what if we have no landing at all? Now, some people like folks over at Morgan Stanley respond and they say, well, you know, uh, the longer we fly, the longer we have a risk that we run out of fuel and we break something. I personally actually think, sure, it's possible we could have a black swan, but I actually think this analogy is kind of flawed, this idea that we have to come in for a landing at all. And it is true, you know, if maybe maybe we were coming in for a landing, but now we're doing a go around or we're, you know what, we're like, we don't want to land anymore. We're just going to hit the gas and fly again. You know, pl planes that are coming in for a landing, they can just hit the gas and take off again. Like they don't actually have to touch the ground at all. Uh, I think it's e it's easy to forget that. Uh, and and so this idea of, of constantly comparing the economy to a plane it kind of suggests that, well, why didn't we run out of fuel in 2014 or 15 or 16 or 17 or 18 or 19 when the economy is just continuing to grow? Be the, in my opinion, we have to remember that work is basically fuel for the analogy of the plane. So the more the economy functions and grows, the more fuel it actually has. So uh, this idea that we have to force a recession uh, or land the economy, I, I think is actually a fair one uh, to say that we don't need to. It is fair to say that maybe there is a no landing scenario at all. Uh, and that really we're seeing uh, the biggest cushion come into play from uh, margins at companies. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But regarding the economy itself, we're now sitting at a 90% chance that we're going to hike rates to 5% by June. That's double that odd from a 45% uh, ago, uh, just a month ago. Uh, and we're seeing more spending, right? We saw retail sales rebound, consumer spending rebound, Visa, MasterCard, all reiterating this. Uh, Nick T apparently forgot that mortgage rates have already moved back up. And now this is an interesting one because Nick T doesn't provide all of the color that he should here. And this is where I always like to provide additional perspective. See, Nick T here mentions that Unilever, the maker of Dove and Ben and & Jerry's ice cream, mentioned that revenue was up 9% in the fourth term, even as volumes fell and prices rose 11%. Pepsi talks about increasing sales prices as well. Well, fortunately, I actually have those earnings calls. And one of the things that I noticed going through these earnings calls that's very, very clear is that these companies, while they, yes, they do talk about increasing prices, they talk about no longer being able to increase prices, suggesting that the consumer is burned out of price increases. Let's look at Unilever a little bit in detail and let's look at Pepsi a little bit in detail. So what do we have over here? So uh, we, have, uh, we have volume being impacted more than expected. Volume was less than they would have modeled at these levels of price growths. And that's because they have experienced extraordinary inflation. This is Unilever. So it's important to know that, yes, these companies have experienced uh, inflation. And there is still inflation in the pipeline. And that, yes, as China uh, comes back, we should see potentially some pressure on commodities. But what does Unilever say here? Gross margin was down 210 basis points, reflecting the fact, that, the fact that despite stepping up pricing and landing higher delivery from our savings programs, we were very mindful of the pressure on consumers and chose not to fully offset the extraordinary level of inflation through pricing. 
In other words, they didn't have the big enough PP to pass on all of the price increases. This actually shows you that even though, even though you still have inflationary pressures, companies are realizing we can't keep raising prices. We can't keep raising prices because we don't have that big of a PP. And this, in my opinion, is not a sign, as Nick T implies in his article, that, oh my gosh, these companies are raising all this pricing. That's where he stops in the article. But Nick, bro, you got to go a step further, man. You got to go a step further and analyze, is it possible that those price increases are done or that they're not actually a full price increase that could be made? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. The companies themselves are telling you that even with the increases, we are getting hit with margin. We are not able to fully cover the price increases currently. And even though we were able to cover a lot of them, we are not going to be able to continue doing that in 2023. In fact, Unilever is now talking basically about scamming people. Okay, I'm being a little facetious with that. But they're basically talking about, yeah, we're looking into our architecture for how we package products to basically try to pass on higher pricing while giving less product, right? When they talk about price pack architecture, that's what they're talking about. It's like your beer that was $10 used to be 12 ounces. Now it's 10.9 ounces, right? That's basically shrinkflation. Uh, and and they're, they're frustrated because they're realizing their margins are getting crimped. Listen to this quote right here. I'm, I'm literally reading it from the horse's mouth here. So that's a bit of a comprehensive tour on the last year characterized by high levels of pricing and pack price architecture and lower levels of promotion. That's 2022. This year, there will need some, we will need some level or some list pricing and probably use mix more in 2023 than we have historically. In English, PP down. We can't raise prices as much anymore. Volume is expected to be negative going into the next year because of price elasticity being limited. People have a limit to how much they are able to pay. And so you are seeing that limit show up over here. You're seeing PP falling. That is Unilever. But Nikki T didn't just mention Unilever. He also mentioned Pepsi. So what does Pepsi tell us? Because after all, Pepsi raised prices a lot, right? Well, let's go over to Pepsi. And let's just briefly look at what Pepsi has to say for us. Okay, first thing we have right here is on inflation. I have a couple of comments on that. Number one, obviously, inflation is still out there as a factor for us. Partly, the fact that inflation is still high, it's not as high as it was before, but then the numbers are still relatively high. So we know this in the food and beverages space and aerospace space, you still have lingering embers of inflation. We know that. We know that with certainty. But what do they talk about? Instead of raising prices, what does Pepsi talk about? Yeah, um... This year, we really want to grow productivity. They literally say that. We're looking to drive a lot of productivity this year and put investments back into the business. And consumers are responding positively to this, but our expectation is to hopefully have margins in line with 2022. So listen to that for a moment. They're going to increase productivity in 2022, but have margins in line with 2022. In other words their costs might be going up, but they're not able to pass those costs on to their consumers. Instead, they're going to increase productivity to preserve their margins. 
Think about that visually for a moment, okay? If the red line is pricing and the orange line is cost, on the left it's 22, on the right it's 2023. If the company is saying, hey, we want to have the same bottom line, which is the X. We want the bottom line to be at the same level, margin. If we want margin to be at the same level and we're not increasing pricing, instead we're going to increase productivity to absorb uh, uh, the, the orange increase here, then we are preserving margin through more productivity, not by raising prices. That's what they're talking about here. We're not raising prices anymore uh, or we're not able to anymore because people are starting to react negatively, right? That's a problem. So I want to, so here's somebody who wants to ask about pricing and the higher range and stuff. They're, or, or they're talking about winning, uh, uh, winning, uh, winning market share. They talk about how in the last two years, there's been more pricing increases and in the last two years. Uh, obviously we know that we've had a lot of inflation the last two years, so that's not a surprise. And then over here, we have uh, revenue growth is still growing at a healthy rate, and we feel good about that guide. Uh, and volumes, yeah, volumes might go down a little bit, but let's see how the year plays out. So, and they say right now the consumer is still quite good, but we're planning for multiple scenarios. So what do you have when you actually read the entire Pepsi earnings call? You don't have a company that same thing at Unilever. You don't actually have a company that is saying, hey, we're going to keep raising prices. That's not what you have at all. So Nick T in his article is like basically ending the article by saying, oh, well, still inflation. Uh, but the reality is these companies are out of steam. These companies, I'm going to write it down, are out of steam to raise prices. Instead, they're talking about productivity and volumes going down. That's what they're talking about. Productivity to preserve margins and volumes going down. They're also talking about packaging uh, stuff differently to basically trick the consumer. I mean, that's just what shrinkflation is, right? It's a trick of the consumer. Uh, and so even though there might be higher input costs, they realize the ability to pass that on to consumers is limited. And I think this is something very important to remember is that the Federal Reserve right now cares about CPI. Oh, sorry. I meant to say CPI. There we go. The Federal Reserve right now cares about CPI. They do not as much care about PPI. And the Fed's version of CPI is PCE, personal consumption expenditures. Anyway, this is important because these are very different. Consumer and personal is very different because it's the end product price. The end product price at companies, even like Unilever and Pepsi or other companies like Starbucks and Chipotle and Whole Foods, uh, at the clothing companies, all of the companies that I'm reading about that sell stuff to consumers are like, we are tapped. We can't raise prices anymore. The only places I'm actually seeing price increases are like in aerospace or industrials and in some of these raw material impact, uh, inputs for producers. So we could be in a situation where, yes, you still have producer price inflation, but you don't have as much CPI or PCE. So what does that mean? Because you might ask yourself, but Kevin, but Kevin, if input costs go up, so in other words, 
if costs go up, the PPI goes up, how is it possible that CPI doesn't go up? Well, it's simple. It's the elasticity of demand puts a limit. There's a ceiling, and that ceiling uh, is measured by CPI. But Kevin, if the producer price goes up, doesn't the ceiling have to go up? No, because people stop demanding the goods or the services if it goes up. So then who pays for it, Kevin? Simple, margin. Margin go down. Profit at companies goes down. Let me make that even more simple. Earnings go down. And so this is where you can actually potentially go back to this JP Morgan article where they talk about seeing equities hitting an air pocket during Q3 and Q2. Why? Because earnings go down. Earnings go down, not inflation go up for consumers. That could actually potentially lead to the no landing scenario. So what is a potential no landing recession is canceled scenario look like? Well, here's what it looks like. Throw that up on screen. A no landing scenario looks like the following. It looks like basically uh, job growth, wage stability. So in other words, more people employed, but wage stability. It looks like consumer price stability. It looks like embers of inflation still coming through, but new embers not forming. It means earnings down, especially at food and staples. This is a red flag because if you, are, if you have been investing in staples in 2022, you're probably going to see the margin impact in 2023. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. So how do you potentially avoid that impact? Well, potentially you look for pricing power stocks. Where could those be? Maybe, and it depends how the economy moves. This could flip-flop but maybe that could end up being uh, in renewables if the economy does well. If the economy does poorly, uh, then and you actually do go into recession, renewables would probably do poorly. Uh, it's potentially in, uh, uh, in tech and, 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 and AI, in, in stocks that have substantially uh, been burdened, but now these companies have uh, hopefully streamlined their margin a little bit by laying off and maybe we go back to uh, economic growth and then generally these companies that have sold off over the last year would be the beneficiaries of that. Maybe, right? But it depends. Uh, so these renewables and tech AI would be great in a re-acceleration environment. If we actually do go into recession environment, this is the, 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 the riskiest scenario because this is where you just ultimately have a sell down of everything, right? Uh, as we've seen over the last year. But anyway, the no landing scenario is actually bullish, in my opinion, for, for growth, renewables, and sort of a reacceleration in that area, and not so great for restaurants and uh, your, uh, your, your more uh, price-sensitive uh, areas. So, uh, you know, again, you're looking at uh, uh, evidence of this, this cap on pricing, even coming from Tyson Foods, right? Price and foods, like, yeah, look, some of our costs are going up, but we, we just can't raise prices anymore because our PP is getting small. Something important to keep in mind. Very, very, very important. Uh, could you see a rotation to value? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anyway, so uh, that uh, that's my thesis on the canceled recession. Now, obviously, today is the Super Bowl. So today is uh, Super Bowl 57. 
You got the Kansas City Chiefs versus the Philly Eagles. Really excited to see the ads. We're expecting to see more alcohol ads. Nobody knows alcohol ads like I do because obviously I'm so great at marketing. Uh, the uh, uh, what's very really, really interesting about uh, this Super Bowl season is you have a uh, an environment where previously you'd only have Budweiser beer ads, but because of uh, in part uh, the exclusivity contract getting more expensive because crypto ads are going away, you might actually see Heineken and Paps and 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 other companies advertising in the in the alcohol space today, which is quite interesting. So we'll take a look at that. <clears throat> Let's see here. Uh, then we've got uh, PP facing shrinkflation. Shrink <laughs> yeah. People selling a jet must love that buying a jet is the new influencer flex. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I disagree with that characterization, really. I mean, sure, you know, that's what some people use it for. You know, if you want an influencer flex, go buy a cheap jet. You know, you could buy a cheap one for a few hundred thousand dollars. Uh, fine. But if you're actually trying to fly something regularly for business, uh, you know, that's my goal is I'm, I'm, I'm flying a jet for house hack. Uh, that's my, per it's like, quite frankly, it's my personal bet on, on, uh, that, uh, that hopefully we can create a multi-billion dollar company with, with house hack. I'm so enthusiastic about that. I look at, I look at the jet as a drop in the bucket to, to the potential uh, for what for what we're planning for house hack, so we're we're so excited. I mean, obviously, no guarantees. You know, I don't I don't want somebody to be like, that's it. I'm yoloing all my investments into house hack because Kevin said it's going to the moon. It's, it's not what I'm saying for sure, uh, but I'm very 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 excited. Uh, so my my goal this year is to fly between 400 to 600 hours on that sucker. Uh, so uh, you know, anybody who's like, oh, you could charter a jet, uh, obviously would would be insane to suggest that at the hours that that I'll be flying. You know, I think I think uh if if a jet is like a is just like a showpiece, that's when you fly it like once a month. That's when it's just a stupid showpiece, right? But when you fly the sucker four or five times a week, it's actually a business. Uh, so mm. Yeah. Yeah. You need safety professionals. You know, we got two pilots uh, that that uh, have a uh, have a have a job to be uh, safety professionals. <laughs> uh, and then you just need lots of guns. No, I'm just kidding. Nobody's no nobody's allowed to have guns uh, unless you're the boss or somebody assigned by the boss. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, no, guns aren't allowed in California, are they? Anyway, uh, Kevin, with everything going on, we need to know. What could happen if hell breaks loose and we enter a war economy? Yeah, I mean, look, if you enter a war economy, uh, yeah, I think I think generally we have bigger problems uh, than than what our stonks are doing, right? So I bet on no U.S. war because we would be in in situations uh, that really we wouldn't be so worried anymore about stonks. Everything will just be poopy doopy then. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we, we don't like poopy doopy. Happy meals with happy dads. I don't really understand what that means. I have some money in house hack, but you mentioned a prospectus coming out soon. Do you have a timing as to that? Jennifer asks, um, well, there is a prospectus, uh, and it's the private placement memorandum that's available at househack.com. I think what you're referring to are projections. Uh, yeah, um, we, uh, probably April or May is when we do the reg A round. Uh, now, the Reg A folks, 
won't have the benefit of as large of warrants as people who are in now. So there's a there's a big reward to the people who are house hack investors previously uh, or already. But uh, it, it, we're, t we're looking at uh, releasing a, a set of projections, which we, we have not done in the past. And uh, we expect them to be very exciting. Uh, of course, no, no guarantees uh, on what your reaction would be to them, but uh, we're, we're quite excited. Uh, yes, projection of the PP. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I, I would say April, May is the, um, uh, is, is the current plan, and um, uh, they, they should be pretty remarkable. We've, we've got, uh, we've, we've also have a, a timeline to go with that now as well, uh, because last year when we launched House Hack, remember, we launched House Hack in early September, so we're really based off August data of what was going on in the economy, and we had no idea. We had really no scope yet on, on when we would see potentially disinflation. And by the time uh, April or May come around, we'll have the January CPI, we'll have the March CPI, we might even have the April CPI. We'll have a very clear idea as to when we expect to be buying real estate and what we expect to do with that real estate and what we expect to do with, with uh, hiring and, and locations and everything. So. Uh, that's why April, May, we, we expect to have a very clear uh, vision. Uh, but of course, as with any company, you have to be fluid, right? Uh, when facts change, a company has to, has to change its, its flexibility. But the good news is we're just sitting, uh, you know, taking in data right now and studying and, and preparing uh, that, uh, those projections. And, and, and every day that goes by, we have more and more clarity, so it's wonderful. The fog is clearing is the way we look at it. So uh, we're pretty excited about that. 1951 inflation. 51, you mean like post-Korean War? That was pretty transitory. What brand of jacket is this? Isn't this another Robert Graham? This is another gift from my dad. I'm pretty sure this is another Robert Graham. I don't know. I don't have a tag. But my dad gets me this stuff. And I'm pretty sure all the Robert Graham stuff is like skulls. I, I kind of like it. Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that. What's my view on someone's price target of an S&P 500, 3,200? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a similar question to, to uh, uh, Matt's here. Uh, Matt's, Matt, Matt's, Matt, Matt, whatever. Uh, hi, Sweden here. Is Tesla going to 80 that everyone said before the rally? <laughs> yeah. So uh, you can answer these questions sort of jointly. In order, in my opinion, for us to have a massive... Uh, downside move in markets, you really need to expect some form of massive um, <clears throat> sort of correction uh, or black swan event. Black swan event tanks everything uh, or a huge CPI uh, disaster on Tuesday uh, could tank everything, right? That could almost be this idea of, of, of a black swan. You would need something really dramatic. With Elon not selling, I think the odds of going under 100 again for Tesla are, are less than 5%. I think it, it is a, a very, very small tail risk for Tesla to go back that, that far down. You know, can Tesla go back to 150 or whatever? Sure, whatever, big deal. Uh, but then, you know, on the flip side, can it go back to 250, 300 pretty quickly? Absolutely. Uh, and you have to remember what led to the selling pressure on Tesla in 2022. It was Elon selling. Now, of course, there was some macro there, but the Elon selling was, you, you have to look at the numbers. I'm a numbers person. You had shares that were locked away in, in the freezer that were not moving, and they were called Elon Musk shares. And he took $24 billion of those and dumped them on the market. Retail buyers only bought 
$15 billion of Apple. So Elon sold 50% more shares than all of retail hodled in 2022. That's disgusting, man. He dipped into 2021 basically hodling uh, for, for retail buyers. It's almost like no retail bought, uh, bought Tesla for 18 months with, with the amount of damage that, that Elon did. Now, I'm not blaming him for that. It's his right, obviously, to do that. They're his shares. He can do whatever the hell he wants. He could dump more tomorrow if he wanted to. But that led to the easiest short ever and, and this downtrend that short of more Elon selling, I think is very difficult to replicate. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that's my thesis on, on that. You know, am I getting a Cybertruck? I, you know, I have a, a Cybertruck Resi. You know, I had it since the day they announced it, obviously. But uh, Elon said he regrets selling his Tesla shares. Yeah, sure, because they're more expensive now. <laughs> uh, if they went down more, he wouldn't regret it. <laughs> um, oh, shoot, I forgot which other question. Oh, the Cybertruck thing. I just don't drive. Why not just fly JSX? Okay, it's not, it's, see, and, and I appreciate asking the question, but you have to realize there's a massive difference between me uh, flying with JSX, which takes, which does, you know, occasional trips to destinations that I may want to go. And in those cases, maybe that makes sense, but you're not doing day trips. You're only going to like, what, 11 different airports that exist? Uh, you know, for, and for, for half of the JSX destinations, you're a connecting flight. You're only flying out of Burbank, which is an hour away. It's not bad though. It's an hour away from me, which is not bad. I uh, don't get me wrong. I like JSX for the certain airports they go to, but I don't, I don't only go to those places. And if I'm flying four, 600 hours a year and day trips, which day trips aren't possible with JSX, you can't even necessarily do next day with JSX because they don't necessarily fly certain routes every single day. So, you know, they're, they're, they're like, there, there's so many of these ideas that, oh, you could just do X. It's like, it's devoid of reality. You can't just do <laughs> something, you know? Uh, <laughs> thank you for the compliment to my dad. Have you heard about overemployed working two remote jobs at once? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I believe that. Uh, I think there's a lot of that going on right now. I, I actually think that's this is the time to do that, right? This is the time to be working more. Like people, you, you know, like I... Uh, I say it all the time. I'm like, in a recession, you should be working your ass off. The last thing you should be thinking about is going on vacations and not working. You should be doing everything in your power to make as much money as possible because every bit of stock you can buy or investment you can make or more resilient you could be now is worth so much more than those stock buys in a bull market. I mean, think about it. Would you rather buy... Uh, uh, you know, just as a simple example, would you rather have been buying Tesla and DCAing Tesla between 100 and 200 in, in a bear market and in, in the shitty recession? Would you rather be buying shares there or would you rather be in a bull market working harder and buying shares at four or $500? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Uh, it's like, oh, but what if it goes lower? Who gives a shit? <laughs> You're obviously in a bad economy uh, right now. Uh, you know, you're not going to be perfect with everything you do. Get off your ass and work harder. Now, absolutely now's the time to do that. Uh, right. Uh, <laughs> old school RuneScape. I love old school RuneScape. Uh, how come planes don't have parachutes? There actually is a plane that has a parachute. It's called the Cirrus. 
It's a single jet engine plane, and uh, it comes with a parachute. And, uh, it, you know, it's, um, unfortunately, the insurance costs on that are like three times as high because people panic and pull the parachute and then destroy the plane because uh, it crash lands. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's very interesting because uh, my wife has this idea that if your plane needs a parachute, I'm not going in it. That's, that's her thesis. <laughs> Uh, it's also very expensive to repackage that parachute every 10 years. So, um, you know, I, I, you know, yeah, 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 uh, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, generally you wouldn't want to fly over the ocean with only one engine, you know, you fly close to coastlines for that exact reason, <laughs> so you can actually go land somewhere if you need to. The cool thing is, if you have a if you're you're flying a jet at like 42, 45,000 feet, you have a long time to glide down if you needed to glide down if you had like a double engine failure or whatever. Yeah. So where am I getting my pilots from? Craigslist. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Folks, appreciate y'all being here. I gotta go. Enjoy your Super Bowl Sunday, and uh, thank you for coming to the Meet Kevin Report. We'll see you in the next one. Goodbye.